Welcome to Jean Milan 2.0, a re-recording of the long-awaited Jean Milan episode of this podcast. I originally posted this in September of last year, right before things got pretty crazy here at Shea Kensington. After things calmed down, I got a chance to listen to both this and the Henri Frenet episode, and to my shame, the Frenet episode had better sound quality. For a melanology buff, that's just not right. This may seem like a small thing to you, but understand that if you're geeky enough to do a Jean Milan podcast, you're geeky enough to want to do it right. I don't know how many people in the world understand why that would call for a new recording session. Maybe five, maybe five hundred. But I'm one of them. And all the others are people I very much want to be in good standing with. So here we go. A slightly edited, better recorded version of Herding Lions, Maximizing the Resistance. I started working on this just before June 20th, the anniversary of the birth of Jean Milan, and a good excuse as any to do an entire episode on the gentleman. It's taken this long not because I didn't want to talk about him, but because I didn't want to fail him. I would like nothing better than to flip the switch in your mind that will leave you thinking about this person at least once a week, if not once a day, for the rest of your life. That switch was flipped for me 17 years ago, and it's made for a pretty good perspective on things ever since. There's no guarantee, of course, that any podcast can do that, and certainly not one produced by a rank amateur like myself. But for all its faults, the alternative to saying what I'm about to say was to say nothing at all. And as you'll soon discover, for a resistance podcast, that's just not possible. This episode will be in two parts. The first, every fact you need to know to get through a dinner party conversation about the most famous, most celebrated of resistance. Then, as a raging melanology buff myself, I'm honor-bound to give you the rest of the story. As we've already discussed, the Resistance was often a fractious entity, and not without controversy. This is why, if you've been to France, you may have seen a street dedicated to Jean Milan, or a park, or statue, or movie, or primary school, or university, or a museum they just opened a third this past summer, or to Frank Coyne. The reason it's raining one particular man in France is because to honor Monsieur Milan is a politically neutral way for France to honor the Resistance entire. He was the founding president of the CNR, the Council Nationale de la Resistance, and he is an unmitigated hero. He was also both de Gaulle's man in France and further to the left than the salad fork. This makes him someone both the Gaullist right and the left can claim as part of their heritage. Don't let the smack of political machination bother you. It's actually quite appropriate. In life, Prefect Milan often provided the place where people of all stripes came together. Some men are born fighters, others born peacemakers. Somewhat to his dismay, Prefect Milan was a natural peacemaker. Jean Milan was born in 1899 to a Provençal family where patriotism and ambition were the daily bread. 
Each of the last generations had attempted a career one step up from the one before, from farmer to barber to schoolteacher to, with Mr. Milan himself, a prefect, the youngest in France. A prefect is the French version of a governor, only without the bother of elections. If you are a prefect, you are appointed to what one historian called a position equal only to the permanent secretaryships of Whitehall. That's the ambition side of things. As for patriotism, a lot of biographers note that his father was an atheist. While accurate, that doesn't paint a full picture. His father's real religion was country. His oldest son, Joseph, died at age 19 of peritonitis. For years after, young Jean would be brought to his brother's grave where his father would say things like, If only he died for France. If only he died in a war. For some boys, this ritual would have had no effect. For sensitive little Jean, who revered his father and his older brother in equal measure, it was either a life sentence or a death sentence. Take your pick. When World War I came, our aspiring hero was desperate to join up at an early age, but somehow cooler heads prevailed. It was probably made clear to him that if the youngest child and only surviving son left in the family died, it could kill his doting parents, who'd already buried two children, one of them an infant. And with his older brother no longer around to take up the family mantle of upward mobility, someone had to live long enough to fulfill that goal. Putting hopes of an art career aside, young Jean Milan went to law school and not to war, biding his time until he reached the age of the draft. After a few years of this, he was finally old enough for service, but by then the bulk of the fighting was over. One of his main tasks in his army days was digging the graves of the dead soldiers. Not to be maudlin, but it's easy to picture the life sentence pressing deeper into his psyche with each fresh grave. Smash cut to 1940. For the past 30 years, Mr. Milan has been establishing a reputation as someone in the political world who can get along with anyone. One political enemy was even to have said that if it weren't for his connection with the Popular Front, he'd be the most charming man in the world. But for such a peacemaker, he's also been spoiling for a fight. From his place in his good friend Pierre Cotte's aviation ministry, he supposedly helped a few planes, let's say, fall off the back of the truck where anti-fascist forces in Spain could pick them up again. He attempted, through many letters, to be let off from his duties as prefect of Chartres to join the armed forces. Someone finally rubber-stamped this, and he was all set to go when another official cancelled his orders and basically told him to shut the front door and get back to work. And get back to work he did. It was in this capacity, as prefect of a department not far from Paris, that Mr. Milan finally got to execute the play his father called decades before and stand up for his country. He was ordered to evacuate his post and move south with the government, leaving his department an open city. This may not be the first time he ever disobeyed a direct order, but it was his most significant Bartleby to date. He remained at his post and talked as many fellow civil servants as possible into following his lead. Thus it was, when German tanks rolled under the celebrated stained glass of Chartres Cathedral, they found not another French ghost town, but a uniformed prefect and a former mayor of the town, waiting in the yard of the prefecture to address the needs of a peaceful, honorable transition of power. During these impossible days, Milan was a one-man Heisenberg particle, spinning everywhere at once around the chaotic department of Chartres. Despite the constant airstrikes and machine gunning from the sky, 
He was helping to keep the ovens going in the bakery, doing the baking himself when they were short-handed. He was in the hospitals checking on supplies, visiting local German command to sort out security issues. He was posting notices around the city appealing for calm. He was shouting down third columns in the streets. He tore around the department in his car until it was stolen, and then he got around on a bicycle. He was even to be found at the prefecture, keeping up with the defining hallmark of civilization, paperwork. It was here that the German soldiers found him and informed him that he needed to come with them. Mr. Milan probably thought he was being taken into custody as a POW. We know this because he sent a letter to his family, down south in Provence, saying that that was what he expected to happen when he remained at his post. He had a further premonition as well. At the end of the letter, he added a postscript saying, If the Germans, who are capable of anything, force me to sign a document against French honor, you will know in advance it isn't true. Do you ever have one of those moments where the phone rings and you pick it up and greet the caller by name before they have the chance to identify themselves because you just knew who it would be? Prefect Milan was having one of those moments on a historic scale. Just as he predicted, they took him away and attempted to force him to sign a document blaming French-African colonial troops for the deaths at a local school that were clearly the result of German airstrikes. Prefect Milan refused. They yelled at him, beat him, and took him for a hands-on inspection of the bodies, and then threw him in a shed on top of one of the mangled corpses and locked him in. That night, after his steadfast refusal to sign, Mr. Milan was locked up by the Germans and told he would sign the next day. To his regret, Prefect Milan agreed that if the next day was a hearty twenty-four hours of the same treatment, he might just sign the thing. To his mind, this left only one course of action. When the guards came to wake him the next morning, they found him in a puddle of blood having slit his own throat with a shard of glass. At this point, the Nazis holding him realized they had just turned a small PR problem, the airstrike victims at the school, into a colossal PR debacle. There's nothing like the heroic self-martyrdom of a popular and handsome local leader to get a thousand-year Reich off on the wrong foot. They took him to the hospital, and with medical intervention, he was able to pull through though with a scar around his neck that would remain for the rest of his life. After this, he went right back to doing what he'd been doing before, administering to the town's needs and working with those same Germans to keep the lights on. In the months it took for officials to realize they could just fire him, he managed to, yes, collaborate honorably. They knew he couldn't be pushed, just as he knew they were now part of the fabric of things. He couldn't abandon his department without also abandoning the people in it. So, for a brief spell, he stayed. Not every directive was followed, but the lights stayed on and a semblance of order returned. Oddly enough, the axe didn't fall from the German side of the demarcation line. The less psycho career military men in the German army even had a great respect for this local patriot. It was the new rightist government in the South that cut Milan loose, in a sweep of left-leaning officials. The Germans actually requested he be kept, and when that didn't work, threw him what must be one of the weirdest retirement parties in history. We know these things are true for two reasons. One, Milan is one of the most thoroughly researched figures in 20th century France. And two, he wrote a diary of the days surrounding the invasion. 
If you thought my psychohistorical guesswork of his own personal assessments of his contributions to World War I was a bit over the top, you should know he called this diary Premier Combat, in English, The First Battle. If you're wondering why Vichy would take such an obvious potential flashpoint of resistance and give him a pension and a ton of spare time on his hands, congratulations, you're smarter than the Vichy government. With his newfound free time, Milan was now able to visit with family, friends, and political contacts, and find out who was into what, how deeply, and how much deeper it could go. He had a lot of friends around the country to visit and conspire with. After some time taking the national temperature, he worked out what to do next. He got his false ID in order, and made his way to London to join General de Gaulle. First, he came to Lisbon, where he talked with the British about his goal of helping de Gaulle with resistance work in France. They were impressed. He had a heroic past, a resume your mother would want you to marry. For example, he'd already met and made a good impression on Winston Churchill. He even had the good looks of a cross between Cary Grant and Gene Kelly. If you don't believe me, do a Google image search. You won't be disappointed. In short, he had everything they wanted in a British agent. It's possible that wanting to sell a born-and-raised provincial on the value of tea and crumpets was part of what delayed his getting to London. But it's also possible that transport was just very hard to arrange. It's easy to read subliminal messages into wartime behavior, but there really was a war on, and planes usually don't fall off the back of trucks. No matter what the reason, Milan used this time to draft a long report on exactly what the resistance was, what it could be, and what it would need to get there. In retrospect, a lot of it was ill-informed, but it was still the report de Gaulle didn't know he'd been waiting for. As we discussed before, de Gaulle was regular army, and when he first uttered the phrase, the flame of French resistance must not and will not die, it was of uniformed men marching in formation and fighting open battles that he was thinking of. De Gaulle didn't know he had a resistance, and when he did, he didn't quite know what to do with it. If only a passionate leader perhaps with decades of experience in government administration, could step forward to run things on the ground. When Mr. Milan finally arrived in London, he was a question mark. He was also an answer. After weeks of locked-door conversations, de Gaulle was ready to send Milan back to France as a kind of Gaullist prefect of the resistance. Not that he was perfectly Gaullist himself. He shared with a friend some concerns he had about de Gaulle's commitment to France's Republican values. In this case, Republican equals liberal. If my American listeners need to take a moment to absorb that, go ahead. But in the same letter that he confessed those fears, he reiterated that de Gaulle was the leader to follow. Unlike so many of his peers, Milan did not plan to use the war to remake France in his own image, which is a key reason why his image is now all over the place. His goal was to see France come out the other side looking like France. Being part of a nation meant having a leader, and whether you liked all of his politics or not, de Gaulle was the man for the hour. Although it is worth noting that de Gaulle's speeches from London took on a more Republican flavor after those meetings with Moulin, proof neither man was unaffected by those private conversations. For all their differences, each man would remain loyal to the other for the rest of their lives. Moulin to de Gaulle as his general, and de Gaulle to Milan's leadership during the war, and to his memory after. When someone dared to insinuate that oh-so-liberal Milan might have been a communist, de Gaulle is said to have snapped. He was as straight as a die. 
but more on that in the next episode. Early in the morning of January 2nd, 1941, after one of the world's most comical parachute drops, former Prefect Mulan was back on Terra Franca and ready to get to work. He brought money and instructions to the leaders on the ground. The money was warmly received. For the next few years, Milan would struggle to ensure the instructions were taken as well. The job was one for the record books, and possibly Hercules. These were leaders, men of gargantuan skill and influence in their own right, who'd built a new kind of army, sometimes quite literally with their bare hands. They had just ascended to the peak of a mountain, only now to be shouted orders from some yahoo on another mountain. They're hungry, hunted, and hung up on keeping what little control they've wrested from the occupying forces. Now some puffed-up regular army type, safely ensconced in the comforts of the Savoy Hotel in London, if you please, was going to give them orders? In a word, yes. The best description ever written of Joan of Arc, in my opinion, comes from Shaw's St. Joan. When a general demands why no one has been able to get rid of the slip of a girl who's been insisting on seeing him for weeks, a flustered aide can only reply, She's just so positive. Jean Milan may have been an atheist, but he was also a true believer, a purebred convert to the first church of free and fighting France. He was a charmer, a Heisenberg particle, and he was absolutely positive. It should have taken the same amount of time as the melting of an ice age. But two and a half years later, he hosted an impossible meeting in an apartment at 48 Rue de Four and did an impossible thing. He presided over the founding of the Council Nationale de la Resistance. One army, one intelligence network, one leader. E pluribus unum. There were still smaller factions, of course. Anyone with a few friends could still start up their own DIY underground press or shelter neighbors. Anyone with a gun could be a soldier. But the main networks had all signed off, and, unthinkably to some, there were representatives of the citizenry as well, reps from political parties and unions. This made the CNR not just the resistance network to lead all networks, but a true shadow government. Without this scope, its support for de Gaulle might have been toothless. Instead, their avowed fealty meant it was time for the rest of the Allies to pull their fingers out of their ears and dance with who brung them. Roosevelt was especially put out by this, but thanks to the CNR, France had spoken. Depending on how you look at it, it's either a wonderful or terrible thing what happened next. Kalur was certainly terrible, but it came a scant month after this historic triumph. The wonder is that it didn't happen sooner. It could have. It could have happened that very day. And then the Council's motion affirming de Gaulle as their leader would have meant nothing. Kalur was the worst possible thing that could happen to the Resistance, but it did not come at the worst possible time. Cold comfort, I know, but when doing the impossible, every miracle counts. As to the whys and hows of Kalur, I refer you to the last episode. Lots of people blame René Harday, I add a couple other combat leaders to the list, but you can draw your own conclusions. Interestingly enough, a strange thing happened at that meeting. Jean Milan was late. To anyone who knew him, this statement is similar to saying, the world is flat. To this day, I'm not sure why. Perhaps it's a known fact that hasn't been translated into English yet. Or perhaps it's just another question mark hanging over that Lyon suburb, Calor. But I can at least give you my theory. 
Time and again, in resistance anecdotage, there are stories about someone in a situation that just didn't feel right. There are cases, though I can't point out any at the moment, my apologies, where someone decides to avoid a letterbox or leave a safe house for no reason other than instinct. In the stories that make the best anecdotes, this heightened sensitivity usually saves the day. One case I do remember involved someone searching his messenger to check he didn't have anything written down. The messenger was usually pretty reliable, but that day he had some addresses and names on a piece of paper. The confidant who checked him destroyed the incriminating notes and sent him on his way. As you can already imagine, that messenger was soon captured. Sometimes a person just knew something was wrong. In these cases, it wasn't a bad idea to follow your gut. Any meeting could be rescheduled. A message wasn't worth losing a carrier. And if it was worth someone burning themselves just to deliver it, you hit another snag. With coded messages, a courier couldn't know which ones might be worth the risk. Concession may or may not be the greater part of valor, but it certainly saved lives. But what if you're the leader? What if you're faced with a meeting that doesn't feel right, and you personally carry the living CPU of the resistance in your mind? Before you answer, remember the psychological ramifications. It's one thing for a carrier to skip a drop. It's an order of magnitude more complicated if the man you trust to lead you through hell unscathed starts dropping off the radar. Also bear in mind, this meeting had a very concrete purpose. The head of the military wing of the secret army, General Delestrant, had just been arrested. The post was one of the most contested in the resistance. Without naming a successor fast, the barely healed wound would rupture. Despite its importance, I suspect Mr. Milan was late that day because something felt wrong. He'd known the noose was growing tighter for months. He was the first, and often the only, voice to point out that he did not have an infinite amount of time. People close to him had been burned. One, a good friend, even had a picture of Mulan on him that was supposed to be for a new fake ID. One way or another, it was doubtful he was getting out of this alive. Unfortunately for the resistance, no matter how often he brought this up, London didn't want to hear it. At that moment, if he disappeared, it would be chaos. Kalur was soaked in a torrential downpour that day, the same kind of storm that rained down on Bordeaux as Patan started his speech of surrender almost exactly three years before. By the afternoon, the storm had passed. Mr. Milan met up with Raymond Albrecht to head to the two o'clock meeting. He met up with Mr. Albrecht at 2.15. Can the leader of the resistance, de Gaulle's plenipotentiary in France, miss a meeting on instinct? That question is what I think delayed him that day. This is resistance studies, though, so your mileage may vary. In the end, his dependable, steadfast, no, I will not relocate to Vichy, thank you very much, nature won out. He did attend the meeting, late. And through sheer dumb luck, the Gestapo arrived almost directly after he did. Another good line from that Shaw play is, God has to be fair to your enemies, too. That day, the luck fell on their side. The Gestapo had been hunting the man with the codename Max for quite a while, and thanks to whomever burned the meeting, they knew they had him. But for a while, they didn't know which prisoner was Max. By that time, Mr. Milan himself was a bit of a fatalist, but he was no fool. The meeting took place in a doctor's office, and Milan carried with him a referral from another doctor to visit this man, as well as a solid false identity card. Confusion reigned so much that day 
that the help originally took him and his group not to the meeting, but to the waiting room, where he was found when the Gestapo burst through the door minutes later. It's likely this is the reason he was at first sent to Montluc prison, instead of being kept for interrogation at Gestapo headquarters, the fate that befell Henri Aubry, Bruno Lorat, and André Lassagne. Henri Aubry survived the treatment you received that the Gestapo thought you could ID the famous Max, or were perhaps le grand patron yourself. Quote, the Gestapo beat his arms, chest, and shoulders until they were black and swollen. Three times he lapsed into unconsciousness from the pain, but each time the Gestapo revived him for a fresh round of beatings. Between torture sessions, Aubrey was dragged out to the courtyard where a firing squad stood ready. He was propped against the wall, the Nazis raised their rifles, their officer gave the command, fire. But there was only the clicking sound of the unloaded guns. The Nazis played this cruel game four times. After two days, Aubrey broke down and identified Milan. End quote. There is a rumor from Mr. Milan's interrogator that some of his injuries came from him trying to kill himself when out of their sight. Although this would be in character for the former prefect of Chartres, even if a few of the bruises could be discounted, the eyewitnesses who saw him in Gestapo custody had terrible things to report. No one is sure exactly how long it took, but the death certificate said he made it to the 8th of July, this after being arrested on June 21st. Years later, decades later, in December 1964, the ashes presumed to be Mr. Milan were transferred to the Pantheon in Paris, accompanied by a speech from André Malraux. If you want to hear the speech, or just know how cold it was that day, footage of the event is online and I've linked to it from our site. The speech is fine and famous in its own right, but if your French isn't up to it, it's still worth watching. There are hundreds in attendance. National officials like de Gaulle, former resistance, and a large crowd of men and women wrapped in their thickest coats against the icy cold, paying their respects. Note the winds that never let up, the smoke coming off Malru's words. It was a long speech. Everyone spends it standing. Thank you for tuning into this episode of La Resistance. I'm confident you now know enough to get through a cocktail party conversation about the first among equals. However, as I said at the start, I'm duty-bound to also give you the rest of Jean Milan's story, the controversies and the philosophies. The next episode probably won't be as long as this, and it certainly won't win you as much money on Jeopardy. To some, it might not even be about the resistance at all, but I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the tales of skiing, dancing, the popular fronts, and being one degree of BFF away from Pablo Picasso. Tune in next time, and until then... Vive la resistance.